In April 1470, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, was finished. He was no longer a great player in the original English Game of Thrones. But if he was washed up, even the wily Louis XI of France must have been at least a little surprised where the Earl washed up. Warwick arrived in France, having carried out some serious piracy against Burgundian ships in the Channel, after being denied entry to the port of Calais. It must have been music to Louis's ears when he heard that the Earl had sailed into the French port of Honfleur with his Flemish prizes in tow. For Louis's chief continental enemy was his neighbour, the Duke of Burgundy, and the French king, a master of diplomacy and intrigue, saw at once how he might profit by means of the defeated and desperate Warwick. The French king understood that Warwick was not simply some run-of-the-mill renegade Englishman. There were quite a few of those in France already. No, Warwick was a man who had influence, a man whose very name might still inspire support. But if Louis was to make full use of this diplomatic windfall, he would need to act fast, while Warwick's credibility was still high with many in England. He knew from Warwick's diplomatic missions during the 1460s that the Earl favoured a French alliance, a policy over which he fell out with King Edward, who instead allied himself to Burgundy, France's enemy. It was an alliance dangerous to France, which Louis XI was desperate to break. It was clear to Louis from Warwick's actions over the past 12 months that he was trying to effect a regime change in England by his attempts to install the Duke of Clarence on the throne. But whilst Louis was very keen on a regime change, he did not want the Duke of Clarence, another Yorkist, as the next King of England. Instead, he had a better idea, an idea which would ensure that England would no longer be allied to his main continental enemy, Burgundy. He wanted to restore the House of Lancaster in the person of Henry VI. Burgundy had supported Edward IV, and thus was no friend of Lancaster. Now this might seem rather a forlorn idea, with King Henry currently lodged securely in the Tower of London. But his wife, Queen Margaret of Anjou, and his son, Edward of Westminster, were right there in France. Even so, anyone who has followed the story of the Wars of the Roses so far would think that it would be a very tall order indeed to persuade Queen Margaret to join forces with one of her most implacable enemies, Richard Earl of Warwick. But here Louis XI lived up to his nickname of the Universal Spider. As an expert manipulator of people, he knew exactly which buttons to press to persuade these two intransigent foes into an unlikely alliance. If Warwick had ever considered the possibility of reconciliation with Queen Margaret, he must have viewed it as very much the last resort. Well, by May 1470, the last resort had been reached. It is a measure of Warwick's utter desperation that he was willing to fling aside previous loyalties 
to mount one last attempt at achieving real power. Thus, between May and July 1470, Louis was able to broker negotiations between Warwick and Margaret, and he could be very persuasive. He would have emphasised to both parties that this opportunity was their last chance. One potential stumbling block was the Duke of Clarence, because if Louis's plan succeeded, Clarence would no longer be the first taxi in the line. Instead, at best, he would be parked somewhere out of the way. Worst case scenario, he would find himself under a car park. Clarence, though, was not a mere cipher, but a man who still had resources and influence in his own right, as will be made clear later in this sorry tale. For the time being, though, Warwick's son-in-law would have to take a back seat. So, if Warwick was willing, how could the former queen, Margaret, be persuaded to agree to a pact with the man she regarded as the prime architect of her family's demise? She must have regarded the Earl as the devil incarnate. But Louis still had a joker to play. Without support from him, neither Margaret nor her son would ever have power in England again. If she wanted to restore her husband Henry to the English throne, then she would have to do it on Louis's terms or not at all. And Louis's terms were clear. A joint venture with the Earl of Warwick, cemented by a marriage between their children. If Warwick's remaining daughter Anne were to marry Prince Edward, the heir of Lancaster, it would give the alliance some genuine substance beyond mere promises. Margaret must have been reluctant, must have viewed the marriage as a very unequal one, for if her son succeeded his father as king, then a prestigious marriage to a foreign princess would be more appropriate than a mere nobleman's daughter. But the reality was that her son had no chance of removing the House of York without the help of both Warwick and King Louis. Though she had to swallow her bile and come to terms, she did not make it easy for Warwick. At Angers, on the 22nd of July, 1470, the two participated in an act of public reconciliation, during which Warwick spent a quarter of an hour on his knees saying sorry. Several days after this touching scene, Anne and Edward were betrothed. To say it was an uneasy alliance would be an understatement, for Margaret did not trust Warwick at all, and who could blame her? After all, this was a man who was willing to abandon not only his erstwhile friend and ally, Edward IV, but the entire House of York's grip upon the English throne. And for what? For his own ambition and advancement. Yes, Margaret was wise not to trust Warwick an inch. When the plans were laid for this new Lancastrian invasion of England, she refused to leave France until Warwick had demonstrated his commitment by overthrowing King Edward, nor would she allow her son to accompany Warwick. Against all the odds, Warwick succeeded in putting together a coalition of Edward's enemies, including not only Queen Margaret, but also the renegade lords Jasper Tudor, King Henry's half-brother, and John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, 
also a die-hard Lancastrian. But despite his new allies, Warwick would have known that his success in England, as ever, would depend upon the actions of several other key men. His brother, John Neville, Lord Thomas Stanley, and not least, George Duke of Clarence himself. How would all these individuals react in the crisis that Warwick was about to create? John Neville's position was unusual. King Edward had frequently rewarded him for his loyalty, not least for suppressing Lancastrian pockets of resistance. In particular, he had given this prominent member of the House of Neville the Percy Earldom of Northumberland. John, as a lifelong despiser of the rival Percy family, must have been ecstatic about that. But in March 1470, five years later, Edward returned the earldom to the Percy heir. He compensated John Neville with extensive lands in the southwest, promotion to the rank of Marquis, and the betrothal of his son, newly created Duke of Bedford, to Edward's eldest daughter, Elizabeth. The latter was no mean reward, since Edward still had no son. Yet there is the impression that John Neville did not see these inducements as sufficient compensation for losing much of his northern lands and influence. Another key magnate, Lord Thomas Stanley, is often viewed as untrustworthy, though much of that reputation refers to actions from 1470 onwards. There was no reason yet for Edward to doubt Stanley's loyalty. But what is constant about Thomas Stanley is that he always did what he thought was best for House Stanley. During July and August 1470, Edward IV was in the north of England, dispersing rebels who had been encouraged to act by Warwick. Edward hoped that a blockade of French ports by his own ships and those of his Burgundian allies would keep Warwick trapped in France. Warwick's fortunes stood on a knife's edge, and his own men refused to go anywhere unless they were paid. Only Louis's assistance got him out of that bind, but then a stroke of luck. Storms scattered the blockading fleets, allowing Warwick's invasion force to set sail for England in September. When he landed in the southwest in September 1470, Warwick proclaimed that he was restoring the rightful king, Henry VI. However dishonest one might feel that this claim seems now, there is no doubt that it resonated with some people at the time. Bear in mind also that at this point Edward IV had no male heir, whereas Henry VI did. However unlikely it was, Warwick had put together what appeared to some to be an attractive package. Warwick, Clarence and Oxford headed north, while Jasper diverted to Wales to gather support there. Edward was still in the north, stamping out Neville-backed risings, which was exactly where Warwick intended him to be. Though Edward was still confident that he could defeat Warwick, one by one 
his leading nobles joined the rebellion. Notably, Lord Stanley and the Earl of Shrewsbury, but also, crucially, and at the very last minute, Warwick's brother, John Devil, still smarting from the loss of his earldom. For Edward, who expected that John Devil was bringing reinforcements, his defection was a body blow. With Warwick advancing from the south and John close by in the north, the king had no choice but to disband his army and flee. The Yorkist House of Cards had fallen. Edward fled with his brother Richard, the staunch Lord Hastings and a few other close companions to his Burgundian ally, Duke Charles. Meanwhile, his pregnant wife, Elizabeth Woodville, took sanctuary with her daughters, not for the last time, at Westminster Abbey. A victorious Warwick headed for the capital to free a bemused Henry VI and await the return of Queen Margaret and her son Edward, now married to Warwick's daughter, Anne. Nevertheless, the Earl faced some tricky problems ahead. The coalition of forces he had brought to bear against Edward also included some of his own most prominent enemies. Once Queen Margaret did return, along with a few more bitter foes such as Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, and Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter, Warwick must have feared what might happen. All that, though, lay in the future because Queen Margaret, beset by her own doubts about the wisdom of trusting Warwick, was still reluctant to take the leap of faith and return to England. Thus, at the heart of Warwick's alliance lay animosity and mistrust. Even some of his friends were nervous. Some supporters, notably the Lords Stanley, Oxford and Shrewsbury, received little reward for their vital support. And even his brother John, risking all to support him, must have been uneasy about his rival in the north, Henry Percy, who retained the restored earldom of Northumberland. If such men harboured doubts about what they had done, those with no love at all for Warwick were just biding their time until Queen Margaret arrived in the hope that old scores would then be settled. Then again, there were a few supporters of the deposed Edward IV who believed that if enough pressure was applied, Warwick's unholy ragtag coalition would simply fall to pieces. <laughs>